With the McDonald's app, you can get your favorite thing delivered to your door. So if you were looking for a reason to skip washing those dishes you left in the sink, consider this a sign. Right now, get $0 delivery fee with any purchase of $15 or more, only in the app. At participating McDonald's, minimum purchase excludes tax and service fees. Delivery prices may be higher than in restaurants. Other fees may apply. Not valid with any other offer, discount, or coupon. Mark Cawley has had a multi-decade career writing songs in London, Los Angeles, and Nashville. He's had songs recorded by artists like Tina Turner, Diana Ross, Joe Cocker, Taylor Dane, Chaka Khan, and British pop superstars Billy Piper and the Spice Girls. He has global experience having worked for songwriting publishing houses around the world. His songs are on over 16 million records sold. He began his career as part of the Faith Band in the late 1970s with three albums and a hit Dancing Shoes and the band Blinding Tears. And then he made the career transition to full-time songwriting in the 80s and he has never looked back. Welcome to Backstory Song. I'm your host, Doug Burke, and today I am thrilled to have with me songwriter Mark Cawley. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, bud. Nice to be here. Mark, you're based in Nashville? I am, yes. Not born here, but I've been here about 23 years now. Writing a lot, a lot of songs. I noticed on your BMI registration, there's uh, like seven pages of songs that you've registered. And uh, we're going to talk about a handful that have been recorded on this episode, but maybe you can take us back to when you started writing songs and why did you start writing songs? It's, I grew up in upstate New York, like uh, born in Syracuse, New York, grew up in Binghamton, basically. It was in the era of garage band, literally garage band. So we'd start in the garage. It was kind of fun because you were watching Ed Sullivan every Sunday and seeing, you know, this wealth of like from the Beatles to every, every band that was coming out at the time and trying to learn those songs, but, you know, like 15 year old kids. So usually couldn't learn the songs, you know, we weren't that good. So I started making up songs, I think out of necessity in the beginning. And I was sort of the only guy in the band. So I was, I was writing songs and I got all the other gigs that went along with it, you know, like loading the car and I I did all the grunt work in the bands, but writing songs became a real passion, but it, it did come out of the idea of like, you know, you could watch Ed Sullivan and you could hear the Stones and go, well, I think I can do that. But then you'd hear the Beatles or somebody with great harmony and all that. And my bunch of guys that are 14 and 15 trying to look like we're all British rock stars <laughs> couldn't couldn't pull it off. So writing songs was it and wrote a lot of really bad ones in the beginning, of course. And always on your own because didn't, I didn't really know anybody else writing songs. I didn't know any songwriters for sure. So you had some bands back in this, or were part of some bands. I noticed on Spotify that there's some of your early work out there yeah. in the 70s. Yes. Which I've added to your Spotify playlist. I don't know if you knew that. They're, they're, they'll be on the website for our listeners at the bottom. Songs written by Mark in some of your early bands. Uh-oh, those might be cringeworthy, but... But we'll see. <laughs> well, I know you, you didn't want to talk about them on the episode, so if you don't, if you don't like them, we'll take them down. No, I'm fine with it. I'm fine with it. 
<laughs> uh, did you run across? I mean, probably the best one of all that was called Faith Man. Yes, the the Faith Man stuff is, and the critics loved the Faith Man. It was legendary, a legendary uh, misstep, probably. Actually, I, I moved from New York to join a band that was already in existence in Indiana called The Chosen Few, and they got a record deal. And they asked me if I would come write some songs with them because they didn't really write. So I thought I'd go spend, you know, seven days or a week or I don't know, 10 days in Indiana. And I spent seven years. I ended up joining the band. The band got picked up by Terry Knight, who at the time had Grand Funk Railroad. And he was kind of the Svengali of the music business. You know, he's creating these super groups with a lot of hype. And I'll give you the short version of the story, but it became quite an amazing music business tale because he took this band from Indiana, had us eliminate our names from the record. He remixed the record, changed the band's name to Faith, took out any information about who was who, who wrote anything, took us to Richard Avedon to have the album cover done, which was, you know, I didn't know who he was till much later, but it was pretty awesome. So Richard Avedon had us, we, we couldn't figure out what was going on at first because we were young. And he had us like turn around with just our backs in the photo. So long hair, backs. What it became was Terry Knight decided to like put the record out there and let the uh, reviewers and people imagine who it might be. He told us it'll stand on the strength of the music. And we thought, okay, that's different. You know, I was a little bummed about not having my name on there at you know 18 years old or something, but and it was all over the place, you know, double page ads in Rolling Stone, billboards on the Sunset Strip, incredible hype. Rolling Stone was the one that got a hold of it finally and said, wait a minute, these are five guys from Indiana. This is not who we were thinking it is, which was Eric Clapton, Stevie Winwood, all sorts of rumors that Terry Knight kind of helped along, I think. So we went from thinking we were going to be superstars, you know, rehearsing for a tour to start in Madison Square Garden to having Terry call one day and go, I think this is kind of blown up. You guys might want to reconsider getting back in the clubs for a while. <laughs> was, you guys were like the original Millie Vanilli. Oh, man. It was so t- <laughs> ben, yeah. I mean, not to insult you, Mark, yeah, but, 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 but you didn't know that was being done to you either. No, no. Uh, the band was actually very good, too. So it was, and to the band's credit, it crawled out of the trenches. I mean, we took years, plugged away back in the clubs again. Finally did get a record deal with Mercury and did three albums and a hit Dancing Shoes and toured with Fleetwood Mac and Hall and & Oates and Doobie Brothers. And the band had a pretty good run for a while. But boy, it was a, it was a story to begin with. Amazing. But we're going to talk about one of your sort of most well-known songs by Tina Turner, Dancing in My Dreams.
You co-wrote this with Kai Fleming and Brenda Russell, and both of those writers you've written a lot with. So let's talk about Dancing in My Dreams. I'll take you back to the beginning of it. I knew Kai first for quite a long time and had written with her and had some success. Brenda, I always loved, but I didn't know her. And I was at a songwriting retreat in the south of France run by Miles Copeland. And Brenda was there as well. So I met Brenda, wrote with her, loved writing with her, and suggested that she and Kai and I get together. And they didn't know each other at all. So in Nashville, we got together. But we also talked for a while and said, you know, we'd all been trying to write to briefs. You know, you get briefs from publishers and producers. And we'd all been kind of missing out lately. Sometimes you write this song to a brief and someone else does it maybe, or the artist doesn't do it. Something was falling through at this particular time. So the three of us got in a room in Nashville for two days and said, let's write something that knocks us out and, and screw everything else. Let's forget it. Let's forget writing for an artist, a brief, any of that music business stuff. Let's just see if we can knock each other out. And we did. I mean, we spent two days and we wrote something really different that we all really loved. It started with like a Celtic drum loop that I had. Kai did her thing. He wrote a terrific lyric, really terrific lyric. Brendo's incredible with some melody and music as well. We both did that. The cool part of the story is we went out of there thinking, well, if no one ever records it, we don't care. This mission accomplished. We loved it. We went and did a really rough demo, Brenda and I. And we thought, you know, this could be the end of the story, but how great. Meantime, we all had all separate publishers. All the publishers got it. They all loved it, but said, we had no idea who to pitch this to at all. It's a very odd song. Brenda's publisher had someone working in the office, and Tina Turner was looking for a song to start a new album and didn't really have a brief. They didn't really know what they wanted, but publishers, not knocking publishers ever, and publishers and, and record labels can tend to think, well, you know, do part two of whatever the last record was. And that's not what this song was. So somebody in Brenda's publishing company said, you know what? I'm going to send this to Tina Turner's producer. I just have a feeling. And what came back was hilarious in a way. Whoever heard it at the label said, you guys, this is so far off a Tina Turner song that you're wasting our time and we're not happy about it. And whoever actually did this ought to get fired. The story I heard later was they actually did get fired. <laughs> yeah. And, that, and that's how crazy this story has been. And then what happened was she persisted and got it through to Tina somehow. Tina heard it and said, this is absolutely going to start my new album. This is what I want to do. This is a direction that I love everything about it, including we're, we're watching Oprah one time. This dates way back. And she's on, Tina's on Oprah saying, this song came through to me and was the inspiration for this whole album. And she did it. And the album sold about six million. And the end of story was it was a tremendous learning experience for Kai and Brenda and I together. We thought, you know what? We need to spend more time just trying to knock each other out when we write and not write to briefs and not write part two of someone's hit. And that served, I know it served me really well later on with some major artists. So why do you think Tina liked the song? Boy, you know, that's, that's a great question. So hard to, to pin down. I, I think she just identified with the emotion in it. It's an emotional song. Kai's lyric is really fantastic. And I think she just got inside the lyric and got inside the, the kind of, 
almost sort of mystic Celtic beat of it and stuff. It's just a very different song. It just it's hard to tell what resonates with an artist. It's been my experience. Sometimes they the really great ones don't want to repeat themselves. And that's where writers can mess up, me included, for years. So she was looking for something different and it just resonated. Have you seen the video? I have, yeah. What do you think of it? I think somebody just put it together. I don't think it was done by Tina's label, the one I saw. But again, it's my favorite co-writing experience ever. I love the song. I cried when my publisher called and said, guess what? And played it down the phone to me. He was in England. And I lost it because I love Tina Turner. And most songwriters, me included, have these voices they hear in their head that when they write. And you almost try to sing like them. She's one I did pretty often, especially in my younger years, just wanted something that I could imagine her singing. So when I heard her sing it, it you just lose your mind. It's great. What did each of you, Kai, Fleming, Brenda Russell, and yourself, Mark, what did each of you contribute to the co-writing? At that time, I had been used to working with uh, drum loops a lot, which were pretty different at the time. Uh, it kind of got me going and created a mood. Although I'm more comfortable on guitar, I was writing on keyboards for this. So my, I had a keyboard with a lot of drum loops in it and just kind of vibey things. We started there. I just thought, what about this feel? And we started there. Brenda and I just kind of comfortably fall into trying to sing over things and come up with chords. We did that. But I think to me, the most interesting part of this was Kai, because I'd written with Kai and I know how she writes. She needs to be inspired and she can also be very quiet until she's really got something. So the, the funny part of the story was I was dear friends with both these two writers, had written with them separately. And now we're all in a room. And so the very the first day we spent was really just Brenda and I you know, trying to come up with things, seeing where we're going, getting excited about it. Kai, as I remember anyway, kind of sitting in the corner, you know, with a notepad and not a lot to say. So the next morning, I remember Brenda kind of cornered me before, as I remember again, before Kai was there and said, hey, you think Kai likes what we're doing? Because she's not saying a lot, you know? And she said, you do you think she likes it or does she like me? Or, you know, this, you're kind of like in junior high again in these situations. And I said, no, trust me, you know, because I've, I've seen her at work before. And I mean, sure enough, the next day she came in with that lyric pretty much just done and said, what about this? And we all went, oh, geez, it was brilliant. I've had that experience with Kai a number of times. So the chorus I find remarkable because not only is it catchy, but it has no rhymes. Yeah. And, you know, Kai is so good. I learned so much from her as a lyricist that she can make things feel like they rhyme. You know, you can hear it and think, oh, that's so great. And like you probably just discovered, you go back and look at it and go, wait a minute. This isn't really following the rules I know, rhyming line one and three and two and four. And just, just brilliant. You know, I particularly like in the song a few things. The way it does a slow build to a primal crescendo. And, you know, you mentioned Celtic drums. I kind of didn't realize that it was Celtic inspired on the record. It felt more sort of universal primal mm -hmm. inspired Aboriginal, maybe. And then it goes to this real crescendo at the break. And then the strings come in in a full orchestra. You know, it's like, it's the whole 
beautifully, heavily produced sort of 1980s sound. But did you envision that when you wrote it? Or Well, I'm going to be honest with you. No. I love the demo. The demo suggested all that. A couple of really funny things about this as well. The drum loop that I used actually was the same drummer they ended up using for Tina's version, which I think was just coincidence. Uh, I can't recall his name offhand, but I heard her record. And as soon as it started, I thought, have they used the same loop and the same everything? And Brenda sang the demo and Tina actually sounded like Brenda in the beginning of the song. Ours was much simpler. When I first heard, I was kind of taken aback by everything Trevor Horn had done. He used like a kid's choir, probably part of the London Symphony. He put the kitchen sink in this thing and turned it into an epic, you know? Yeah, no, it's really epic when the orchestra comes in in the in the last chorus. It's full on production, you know, almost David Foster like, and you know. And Trevor Horn's famous for that, especially then, you know. I've grown to like it better. But at first, I was a little like, you know, have we lost the essence of the song? There's a lot in there, and it became so long. The pro songwriter and all of us went, "Uh oh, this may not be a single ever," because I don't know how long that version is, but it's very long compared to ours. There's a weird thing on Spotify. It's a 12-minute song, but it's got like other songs attached to it that aren't the five-minute version of the song for some reason. It's definitely not 12 minutes, but it's long. No, it's not 12 minutes. It's a five-minute song. It's like 540. But, you know, to, to answer your question the best I can, I think, is, you know, I did grow to really like his version, but I also loved the initial demo we did, which really captured the very similar feel to it all. And the Celtic part, you know, I probably should clarify. I always think of the drum loop as Celtic, but I had a keyboard part that that's that, uh, da, 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 da. it's very Celtic melody, you know? So I always, I always think of those things together, I guess. But Yeah. The, the keyboard almost, it's a synthesized keyboard that almost sounds like a flute on the record to me. Exactly. You create, or whoever did created sounds that don't sound like keys out of the synthesizer. They sound like other instruments, but not perfectly like other instruments. They're clearly played by, you know, pianist. Yeah, you're right. Like the original demo was a bit like that too. And I was going after more like a penny whistle sound, you know, more of a traditional Irish. Oh, that's what it is. Yeah. So I was trying to simulate that as best I could, not being a great keyboard player and having limited stuff with us at the time. But that's what I was going for. Those kind of things Trevor Horn did pick up on, I think, and really nail. Yeah. And part of it, it sounds like he's plucking strings on a keyboard, which is remarkable, like that you can actually get that out of a synthesizer. Yeah. He's he's a master of, of big production. That's for sure. Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save big money at
Another song you wrote with Brenda Russell was recorded by Joe Cocker on his 1997 album, Across from Midnight, the song Wayward Soul. Right. Tell me about what inspired this song. That was typical of Brenda and I. I remember writing that at her house with her, and we had, no, again, no agenda. It was after the time we'd done the Tina song, and I mentioned that that was sort of a learning experience. I think we carried that over and said, okay you know, what do we do today? Let's just do whatever we want. Let's see what happens. Didn't have anything to start with. I remember ha- playing it on guitar and I did a drop tuning of some sort, probably a D or, or just drop the E maybe, playing sort of a real organic guitar part. And Brenda just started singing, which is another one of her gifts. Just She just starts singing and she's got such a great voice. That's inspiring. And we started trading a lyric here and there. And it's a really simple song, chord-wise. It's just built off that figure, the guitar figure, to the point that there's a couple of cute stories about this song. My publisher at the time was Windswept Pacific in London. And Nick Battle was there, who's a buddy and, and worked there. Nick heard that Joe Cocker was recording not far away and that they were just looking for one more song. And as a songwriter... We love those things when you hear them because it's the 11th hour. They're not tired of something. They're more likely, in my experience anyway, to love something brand new that comes in the door. So it's another song we thought, well, we didn't really hear it as a Joe Cocker song. So Nick from Windswept takes it over to the studio. They heard it. He loved it. Now, he had already recorded a song of Brenda's in the past. And we found out interesting things like that he likes to hear a feet or in time, you know, bless him. He liked to hear a female vocal, not someone impersonating him when he heard a song. So he loved Brenda's voice. That helped. The funny part of the story to me was they came back and said, you know, there's no bridge in this song. And so Nick kind of dutifully <laughs> called me up and went, you know, you guys, there's not a bridge in it. I don't care, but what do you think? And Brenda and I just went, we didn't put a bridge in because I didn't think it needed it, you know. And we didn't try to accommodate anything. They didn't insist on it. We just went, yeah, there's no bridge. You're right. (laughs) Hope you like it. And they loved it and did it. It made it in some god-awful movie. I think Finding Graceland or something like that, which was not a good movie. But he's another one. Boy, I heard that voice and lost my mind because as a kid, I'm watching Ed Sullivan and there's Joe Cocker and there's Tina Turner and there's Diana Ross. And when those people do your songs, they're idols, you know, and you just can't believe your melodies or your lyrics are coming out of their mouth. Joe Cocker singing Wayward Soul 
to me is remarkable because you can understand everything he says. You know, sometimes when he sings, you're like, what the heck is he saying? You know, because he just emotes feelings that may be wrapped around a word. But here, it's really kind of a straightforward delivery. It is, yeah, it is. I was I was proud of it. I just, you know, just again, hearing him, I loved him. I love singers, you know, so Joe was a favorite. Um, but I later years, I worked in Sheffield, England a lot. Still do go there and do workshops. Oh, that's where he's from. He's from there, yes. Yeah, so I found yeah. that connection. And after being there a lot over the years, I thought, I get it. It's a really working class town, no nonsense, you know. He was just a pub singer, you know, a great pub singer and idolized Ray Charles and, and just, you know, nailed it. He was great. Why do you think he was attracted to this song? Wow. I wish I knew, you know, I never met Joe. I think it could have been a couple of things. Again, I think it could have been that, you know, somebody doing an album like that, they get worn out with everything they've been doing and hearing and something comes in the door that sounds fresh and different. And again, I know he loved Brenda's voice. So I think that spoke to him and probably the simplicity, subject matter. The song has these sort of Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon-like screams from female backing, like whales. Those aren't Brenda, right? Those are- No, no, no. I don't know who it is, actually. And there was a lot of production on that that was very different from our, our demo. It was very organic sounding, pretty much a drum loop, guitar, and Brenda. So it was a bit different production. So- you write the song, but you're not envisioning either Joe Cocker or this blues guitar, Hammond organ, you know, backing vocal harmonies of females combination. You're just writing it inspired by what? Uh, just inspired on the day. Again, people like Brendan and Kai, uh, and I've got a couple other go-to writers, Elliot and Kennedy in England is one. They just inspire you, you know, and you hope you inspire them and you just kind of start from nowhere. In a good co-writing situation, you really start from nowhere in those situations. So you don't envision, you absolutely don't go, let's write a song for Joe Cocker, because we'd all done that kind of stuff. And my personal history is littered with that stuff, where once I got a deal, publishing deal, I thought I can write a Joe Cocker song. I can write a Tina Turner, Rod Stewart, Chaka Khan. I know that stuff. Every time I did, it would get on hold. I mean, almost every time it would get on hold for the artist until someone else heard it, maybe usually the artist, and they'd go, no, I've already done this. Yeah, so we, we kind of learned a lesson after the Tina song. Let's just write, you know, whatever comes up in the room that day and see what happens. I like this line. Some people got money, some people got fame. All I had was confusion calling out my name. That to me sounds like Joe Cocker at Woodstock. It does. It does, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think that's what he was attracted to. I think one of the fun things about that too, I can now that you mentioned, I'm I'm going back in my head and I'm remembering being in the room with Brenda and we tended to write like that. One of us might go, you know, uh, all I had was confusion and the other person would yell out the other line. And it's like a conversation that keeps going. And I think that one kind of went that way, if I remember. You know, I think we've all had times in life when confusion was calling out our name. I love this lyric. It's just... It's important to try to recognize that early and not follow the siren song of confusion. Brenda, again, is another one who, you know, she co-wrote The Color Purple for Broadway, the music and that. She's written some amazing stuff. She's a pretty deep writer. Really, really good. What's it like working with her? 
Fantastic. I mean, as I said, I've got Holy Trinity for me. Brenda and I, again, we met in that castle situation. I'll just give you the very brief version, but it kind of explains it. So at this Miles Copeland's castle in France, you're there for to write with other writers, usually for a project. And they throw you in a room, they, they pick a trio of writers, you're in the room all day, and hopefully you're going to come out with a song. Now, Brenda and I, this was the fun part to me. I, I needed a break. I'd been in this place two weeks. Most writers were there a week, but I was signed to Miles Copeland. So I'm there for the whole time. And my buddy, Torkel Creevy was in charge of going to the airport to pick people up and drop them off from this retreat. And one day I said, can I escape with you? Can I just get out for a little bit? You know? And I said, what are you doing today? And he said, I got to go pick up Brenda Russell. And I said, oh, wow. You know, I love her, but I've never met her. So Torkel and I go and pick her up at the airport. And we stop in Bordeaux and have dinner and wine and just had a great time and just instantly hit it off like an old, old, old friend. And then back to the castle, the first time we, we did sit down to write together, we wrote with another artist named Vinks, who was in Sting's band. It just was pure chemistry, just absolute chemistry. And it was because I think we brought different things to the table. You know, I didn't do exactly what she did. So when she did something, it was a wow factor, hopefully for me as well especially on guitar for her. She wasn't, didn't write with much guitar influence. And he just brought something that the other didn't do. And the sum of the parts was great and just exciting. But I've always loved writing with her. I wrote with her quite a bit over the years. A song that's in a different direction for you from those two is My Angel Is Here, which Winona, and I think we all know who Winona is, recorded, at least in Nashville. There's a Winona. I guess there's a Winona rider in Hollywood. Yeah, this is Winona Judd for sure. Yeah, the one of the Judd sisters. You co-wrote this with Lulu and Billy Laurie, and Winona recorded it on her Revelations album. She did. Tell me what inspired this song. Uh, this is another, in my mind, great story. And I, I've written two books now, and the first book has a lot of these stories in it, Song Journey. This one was great because I had lived in London, back to L.A., both my daughters were born. My wife and I just kind of had it with the music business for a minute. I'd lost a record deal. Publishing deal was kind of going nowhere. We went back to her home area of Indianapolis, Indiana, Carmel, Indiana. And just, I kind of stopped for a little bit. And then I got a call from Torkel Creevy, who I'd known through Miles Copeland, and signed a deal with that company called Bugle, which was Miles Copeland, who had Sting then and managed the police. And I was the first writer they signed who was not an artist on the label or an aspiring artist anymore. Anyway, Torkel said, you know, you're not far from Nashville. Why don't you start making trips to Nashville, which I'd never really done. Because of the connections with Miles Copeland, uh, some of the people I met right off the bat had a connection to Miles's label. Kennedy Rose, they were called. Pam Rose and Marianne Kennedy were terrific, signed to Sting's label. They lived in Nashville. So they set me up to write with Marianne Kennedy. So I come down from Indianapolis. I rented a house that belonged to Kai Fleming, who I didn't know. They just threw these circles. They said, we can find you a house to set up in and play and write. So Kai and Marianne were great friends. And Kai just came with the idea of dropping Marianne off for the writing session. At the time, I had set up, you know, again, with keyboards and loops and guitars and a bunch of stuff that was not typical of a Nashville writing session at the time. Kai came along. And to this day, I can remember, and there's actually a picture of it we have somewhere. She's kind of sat in the corner 
and Marianne and I worked and Kai got, came a little bit closer and a little bit closer, really, and kind of was having fun and started kicking in. And the three of us just had a great time and wrote three or four songs. A couple got recorded eventually. We were writing stuff that was pretty different. But over time, it was Kai and I that really locked together and we became just terrific friends. Anyway, so we're writing away. And this particular time, everybody was trying to get on Winona's next album because we knew it was going to be big. It was called Revelations. And Winona was a country superstar and, and another great singer that all of us love. Terrific voice. So Kai and Marianne and I wrote a song called Can't Stop My Heart. And we loved it. I thought it was really unique, very cool, a little bit different. We get a call from Tony Brown's office, who's like super producer in Nashville and label head at the time, saying, we love this song, so Winona's going to cut it. And we're all on cloud nine. And with that, I thought, you know, I'm just going to move to Nashville. I'd considered going back to London and something else, but I thought, you know, Nashville feels really good. So I'm thinking, and we're going to start with a really big cut on the biggest album coming. This is great timing. So I thought this is all meant to be. This is great. I get a house, which Kai helped me find, move my family down again, two young daughters at the time. And we think, you know, we're all off and running. This is going to be great. One day we get a call from Tony Brown's office saying, you know what? We can't manage to figure out the drums on this song. Any idea? I called him back and said, yeah, I used a drum loop and I'll send you the loop. And it was kind of a cool, complicated loop. I forget who performed it, but I'm also thinking, you know, we're not worried because the best players in the world are here these days in Nashville. And I thought they'll, they'll nail this. What we heard at the end of the day was they couldn't really beat the demo. They didn't feel. That's what we heard is they could not read. The computer was better than the live. (laughs) Well, and also Marianne Kennedy is a terrific singer, as is Winona. But I think Winona fell in love with the song, but couldn't really justify, you know, trying to beat it or do something. In other words, it just didn't work. And we got that call. Like, it's not going to make the album. Sorry. You know, we're cutting it, but it's not really working. I'm devastated. We're all devastated because we love Winona. But me in particular, because... I'm going back to my wife in our new home and all. And I said, you know what? This biggie just fell through. So you've learned that as a songwriter, you, you, you have these terrible downs and you got to get over them and get past them and get around them and just keep writing. Yeah. Or write a song about it. Yeah. Or, yeah, or something, anything. Get it Just out. to recover, right? So here's the wonderful part of the story. I have this friend, John Cooper, who's uh, Bruce Springsteen's live sound engineer, house engineer. He's great. And he came up with me through bands. He was the engineer for club bands I had years ago. He coincidentally is working for Winona at the time. And he lives a couple of blocks from me, way out in the country in Kingston Springs, outside of Nashville. And he called me and he's just chatting with me. And he said, sorry about that song, bud. I heard that song. Your your song didn't make it. I said, yeah, you know, we're losing our mind, but we're going to pick ourselves up, you know. And he went, oh, good about the other one, though. And I said, what other one? And he went, your other one on the album. And I said, you, come on, you're messing with me. And he said, no, no, hang on. And he goes and gets whatever info we had. And he said, my angel is here. He said, why loves that? They cut that a while back. That's on the album, going to be a single. I'm losing my mind. I said, just stay at home. I'm coming over. And I remember getting in the car and running over to his house saying, what are you messing with me? And he said, no, they cut this. And I said, no one ever called us. No one held the song. It's not a typical country song. Lulu, as you know, is like a legendary British 
artist all the way back to Sir with Love, you know. She's a legend in England. But man, we were not writing a country song. And I don't know how they got it to this day. I don't know who sent it. I didn't. And I had the clearest route to her. And Lulu certainly didn't. Uh, they didn't know how it got to. Lulu and her brother, Billy Laurie, are the co-writers. Nobody had an idea how Winona got this. So we went all of a sudden from like complete depths of despair to like, wow, we're going to be on a huge album. It stayed at number two behind Shania Twain forever. It did really well. It was great. So the song is kind of religious, but also somewhat secular. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't really talk about a biblical story and you don't say God. It has a Christian pop, country pop feel to it, but it's not overt. Is that by design or what was, was it motivated by a religious spiritual message that you were trying to communicate? You know what? I did not write that lyric and it's hard to speak to because Lulu is an unusual being. She's a Buddhist. So I know there wasn't like an overtly Christian message there. Winona took it. I went to see her tape her live special at the time, which was all, that was such a great album and so much great stuff. She had a TV special behind the whole album. When I saw her do it, I thought, okay, this is her inter interpretation because she just had a new baby. And the baby was her angel in the song. And they actually brought the baby out on stage. He crawled around while she's singing it. I thought, okay, that's her interpretation. Certainly not spiritual. Just my angel is here. This little guy's my angel. And I've heard from more people over the years that have used it as a wedding song and about their birth of a child and all that. So, yeah. But I can't really speak to where it came from for Lulu. Well, I would say it's spiritual. The song, to me, is very, very spiritual. But it's not foundationally based on any individual religion. And that's what makes it so universal and appealing to me. It's a universal feeling that there's more than ourselves here on Earth. That would sound like Lulu, especially, knowing her, yeah. And I really love the break where it really is the concept of faith and the question of faith, and it's posed as a question. So when I'm lost and alone, who will find me? Who's there whenever I call? And that's like why people are spiritual, I think. There's something calling them beyond. Well, I don't have the answers. I'm just the host of the show. <laughs> I don't either, and I'm just the guest. <laughs> yeah, people, trying to interpret your song, Mark. Yeah, people are searching, but it's always funny when, when uh, because I do both. I write lyrics and I write music, and if there is a song that I did not participate in the lyric, like that was done a little bit long distance. I, I went to England all the time to write, but as I remember... I think Lulu came up with that long distance a bit. And I don't really know, you know, what her thinking was at the time. But she was a Buddhist. That's interesting. Yeah, she came and stayed with me, which was hilarious. We lived in Kingston Springs, as I mentioned, which is way out of Nashville. We had a home studio and everything. And she came and stayed for like a week. And knowing how huge she is in the UK and having Lulu in Kingston Springs and going out to dinner and stuff was just kind of surreal. I don't even know what to compare it to. It was very unusual. She was down in the basement of the house with you know, lighting candles and incense and chanting. And it was always fun for my girls as growing up in the house. We'd have guests like that and they'd go, what are they doing down there? I said, it's just, you know, your belief system, guys. 
Your dad's an artist and I have artist friends. Yeah. <laughs> and they do artist things. And yeah, they do artist things. And a lot of times my kids who go, wow. Well, I hope they're better for it. <laughs> I hope so. Neither one became a musician. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Is that good or bad? I don't know. It's funny because they both went to Belmont, which if I had to suggest a music school in the world right now, it would be Belmont. Yeah. Berkeley or Belmont, maybe. I went yeah. to Berkeley for a little bit myself, but Belmont right now is awesome because these kids learn and they go right down the road and intern and get deals. That's right on Music Row. So anyway, but they both graduated from Belmont, but not, not a hint of music. They weren't the inspiration for my angels here because every time you walk in the room, my angels here. Do you ever sing it to them? <laughs> I have. You know, that's one that if I ever do songwriter things, I'll pull it out and sing it. I'm sure I sang it to them. That must be nice having your dad sing that to you, I think. talk about Day and Night, which went to number one on the UK charts by Billy Piper. I don't know if it's as well known here in the US. No, not at all. Not at all. But she was kind of like the Britney Spears of the day over there. And this does have a Britney Spears feel to it, doesn't it? She was probably the biggest female pop artist at the time. And I'll give you the background. It's another, another funny story and very different. I write a lot of different kinds of music and I love England. And I was introduced to Elliot Kennedy, who's become a lifelong friend like Kai and Brenda. He's my third part of the writing trinity for me. He's an incredible producer. He does everything. I mean, co-wrote Finding Neverland on Broadway, produced the Spice Girls, worked with Brian Adams on a lot of Disney movies. He's a force of nature. He's about six foot seven, big Northern English guy. We started writing together and I actually signed with his company because it gave me the opportunity to go to his studio called Steelworks and write for a lot of British artists. Cause they, it was almost like Motown was in the sixties. These artists would come to Sheffield, which is not like London. It's industrial, you know, hours outside of London and they'd camp out there and they'd come in the studio and do writing, do pre-production, then go in the main studio and do their record and then leave. For me as a writer coming, I would come two weeks at a time. And I might go in the kitchen and Elliot would go, this is, you know, the band five or Ronan Keating from Boyzone or the, all these U Jacks at the time and the Spice Girls even. 
and go, you know, write some songs with them and uh, carry on. <laughs> so it was really fun. But in this case, I was back home in Franklin, Tennessee, and I got a call from Elliot saying, we have Billy Piper in the studio and we need a single. We've cut everything else. It needs to be up-tempo, needs to be sort of different. In a typical songwriter fashion, I kind of white lied and said, well, I think I got something, which I had nothing. I can say now. And I thought I went into a panic. I thought, what am I, what am I going to come up with? You know, so I'm pulling out drum loops to stay up tempo. What really worked was back to my experience with Miles Copeland. I used to pick his brain about Sting because he managed him and, and spent all that time building the police. And he said, Sting will go to other countries and immerse himself in the music and let that seep into what he's doing. He doesn't copy it, but song, I don't know if you remember a song like Desert Rose of Sting's. That came from his travels. That was in like Northern Africa, I think. I think, yeah. That was common for him. So my version of that, I was traveling a lot, but not that kind of exotic traveling. So I would listen to music. And I think I was playing some Arabic sort of things at home. And I don't know how this came together, but I'll tell you how it did in a way. So I'm working it, working it, working it. And I'm starting to get into a panic because Billy Piper's actually in the studio with Elliot in Sheffield. And they're kind of waiting to see if anything comes out of me. Nothing's happening. I got in the car and thought, I'll, I'll go to the grocery. I got to get out and you know do something else. So as I'm driving, just not very far, a melody came in my head, which was like kind of like, really kind of foreign-ish sounding. You know, I don't know what it was. Not foreigner, but foreign-ish. Arabic sounding kind of. Middle Eastern, yeah. Yeah, Middle Eastern is the best. That's the best description. That's what I'd been listening to. And it's, it, sure enough, it crept in. It spooked me. Most songwriters have this experience. You go, wow, this is really fully formed. I must have stolen it or I must have just heard it, you know, or something. And this is back before iPhones. So I called my phone and left a message and sang it. All the time I'm in the grocery singing. And I thought, you know, I think I just come up with this. I think I'm good. And I ran, you know, I'm good with it. I ran home and put it down with it, I think with a drum loop and with some chords, just really basic. Emailed it to Elliot. Elliot emails back and goes, We love it. We're on it. They completed it from there. Billy sang it. It debuted at number one. Wow. How's that feel? It was just crazy stupid. And I, I love England's my second home. And to have a number one there happen like that just was awesome. It sold great. It debuted at one. I mean, it just couldn't have got any better. Do they have number one parties in England too? Well, as I remember, we did. I wasn't with them at the time, but I think it was over the next trip that I- They had it without you, huh? They didn't they like the probably, songwriter. <laughs> they probably did. But we did have a mini one, I remember, when I finally got over. Uh, and it was fun because I went over with my kids for what turned out to be Elliot's wedding later. And the song was high in the charts. And it was a big deal there. And that was a good dream. Did Billy Piper sing the song there at the wedding? No, she didn't. But Brian Adams sang. Did, did the Spice Girls or any of his other acts? No, Brian Adams actually sang at Elliot's wedding, which is great. He had all the everybody standing up singing, you know, heaven and those big Brian anthems. It was great. My girls danced with him. It was a fun. That's a whole nother story. But yeah. So day and night was a fantastic experience. The only bummer was they were ready to break her in America. And like you, you pointed out correctly, she's like Britney Spears. And she was actually uh, later on on Doctor Who for years. That's how people here know her. Yeah. But they were ready to break her here. And she said, you know, I don't think I want to do it. I don't want to put the, the energy into America. I think I'm going to act. 
So we were all bummed because we thought she could be big in America. Yes, she made a career change choice. She didn't want to be a pop star anymore. She went out on top with your song at yeah, number one. Yeah, I wish she'd broken America. It would have been fun, you know? So this song has the sort of classic night, right, light rhyme sequence, which yes. but you make it unique. Did you write the lyric or did not write much of that lyric? Some of it, but I think they had quite a bit of it sort of formed, you know, uh, looking for a home. Elliot writes in the classic, Elliot can do anything. At the time, they were a bit of a uh, production factory, you know, like um, I mentioned Motown, but to this day, there's millions of these, you know, where you bring the artist in, you get together with a couple of people and a programmer and, you know, that's how they operated. Yeah, no, it's a hit-making machine. They were a hit-making machine. They still can be. They still do a lot of great work there. But yeah, so I, I think Elliot wrote most of that lyric, as I remember. And Billy Piper may have kicked in a little bit. Let's talk about a song that Taylor Dane did called Dance with a Stranger. And did you write this for her or was this? No, this is a, hopefully another good story. You and I were talking about the value of stories and this is this is a funny one. I write on my own a lot and I certainly did at that time because I didn't know that many co-writers. I wrote it on my own, demoed it at my house with a great singer from Indianapolis named Duran, very great soul singer. So back to my mentioning just signing with Miles Copeland's company and my friend Torkel Creevy. I'd done the song, Torkel loved it, and he and I were out in L.A. to meet different people and do different stuff. And he said, you know what? Tina Turner is looking for a song for the greatest hits. Now, this is way before the one that eventually got recorded by Tina. This is Tina right at the height of everything. Greatest hits coming. He said, we're looking for one song for a single from the greatest hits. Everybody in the world is trying for this song. So... And Torkel, God love him, he goes, look, I'm just going to go over to Capitol Records and knock on the door. I think I know somebody. And I'm just going to leave this. It was probably a cassette. I think it was a cassette. So I'm going to leave the cassette with him. And I thought, well, you know, good luck to you. (laughs) This will be, who knows. And we went to lunch 
And I swear maybe an hour after he dropped this, we're eating lunch and he gets a call going, we love this song for Tina and said, thank you. This is amazing. This is meant to be. It's perfect for her. It's just what we need. Thank you. So he and I celebrate big time. I go back home eventually. Everybody involved is thinking, you know, we need to be pricing new cars and new homes. <laughs> this is how songwriters think, especially young ones. You're thinking, well, I'm just going to make a fortune. I wrote it on my own. You know, I thought this is just magic. And you think it's meant to be, you know, it's just great. I did not write it with her in mind completely, but a little bit because I knew she was looking. So probably in the back of my mind, there was some Tina there. So I thought this is all perfect. You know, I get home and there's a call eventually, I want to say maybe two weeks later going, we're not going to do it. Somehow we got to the bottom of it and found that everybody, including the producer, wanted to do it. Tina heard it and just said no. Can't argue with Tina. <laughs> Nobody did, that's for sure. <laughs> they sure didn't convince her. But you know what I know what it was, Doug, over the years is that what I learned is that she was an artist who didn't want to repeat herself. I gave her a song that sounded absolutely like her and she didn't want to do it. You're back to the, you know, like my angel is here story. You're back to the songwriting grieving you know, episode. I'm like, oh man, I went from like thinking we're going to make a bundle and it'll be great. And it's all perfect to what am I doing now? I remember being in my studio and get a call from somebody with a distinctive New York voice said, Taylor Dane's going to call you in five minutes. <laughs> I said, wow. Okay. Don't know how you got my number. I don't know Taylor Dane, but great. <laughs> you didn't know who she was? I knew she was. But I didn't know her. Okay, okay. Oh, but you didn't know her. Okay. <laughs> I did like her a lot. She was coming off big hits. So I'm thinking, well, maybe we're back in the game. You know, this is maybe this is really good. I get a call from, you know, five minutes later, and she goes, Collie, which I hate somebody calling you by your last name. I remember that always. Collie. And I went, yeah. And she goes, Taylor Dane. I went, yeah. Nice. Great to meet you. I love your song. I said, terrific. She said, I got one problem. I want you to change one line. And I said, then that would be. <laughs> and she said, you got a line in there about a saxophone, which backing up just for a second was one of my favorite lines in the song. It's an example of like object writing. I used a line like lonely saxophone, meaning, you know, you're in New Orleans, you throw the windows open and you hear blues coming from a saxophone. I thought it's a very descriptive line, probably one, one I took some pride in. She said, you got to change that for me. And I thought, okay. I will. And I said, can I ask you why? And she said, yeah, I don't have an effing sax in my band. <laughs> the song has a saxophone crescendo at the end of it. That's what I got, though. <laughs> she took it She took it out of the song, had, but then put it in, uh, in the recording. <laughs> yeah. So she goes, can you change the line? I said, yeah. Being, you know, songwriter <laughs> starving, not starving, but, you know, I could use it. I said, you got it. She said, call you back in five minutes. Five minutes was the key to the whole conversation, I guess. So calls me back five minutes, goes, you got anything? And I went, yep. And I rattled off a couple. And maybe the third one, she went, yes, good, thanks. And hung up <laughs> and did the song. And the album went gold. as the first album I was part of that went gold. It was not a single, but uh, did get a lot of airplay, FM airplay. And I love what she did with it. And I met her years later, finally, thanked her and stuff. It was, it was all good. But the phone call was just hilarious to me. You know, I don't have an effing sax. And so, okay. 
I almost said, what difference does that make? <laughs> you know, <laughs> one of the things I love about the production is the guitar in the second verse kind of is an echo response of the lyric and all the instruments that play in that section are sort of featured independently of each other. Give it a listen if you didn't. You need to re-listen to your own song. <laughs> and, well, you've had some really good insights that are some are new to me. So yeah, I will listen to that. It's interesting. The production is really clever in this regard. And I think that this is a very lyrically interesting song because it's about someone who is coming off a breakup, right? Or can't get over a love and wants to dance with a stranger. And so it's a real disco era feel. And I don't, you know, I don't know that I think people would just go on Tinder or Match today to dance with a stranger rather than going to a disco. So it kind of has this time and place that's different. Although I really think that today's people should get out there and dance with strangers in real life rather than online. It's going to be a while, isn't it? What I love about it, Doug, especially is my family and I had just come from New Orleans just a little family vacation. And as I said, I wrote the song on my own and I probably was thinking of somebody like Tina. I know I've, I've written about this episode of writing the song and I wanted to tell a woman's story who was a strong woman, but coming off a bad break and Southern, which Tina was. So there's probably more Tina than I remember until I start talking. But yeah, I wanted to paint a picture and tell a story about a woman who's surviving a heartbreak by going to a different city in the South the language is, is Southern, you know, I ain't got none. There's a lot of, you know, language of a narrator in it. I could pick up a little bit on the vibe because I'd just been there. So I imagined her being in a hotel without air con, big French windows you throw open, music coming from the street and just wanting, you know, human contact, not a relationship. Didn't want to be picked up, all that kind of stuff. So I really did kind of map out a little short story and I was really pleased with it.
So Mark, you wanted to talk about some songs that haven't been recorded on this episode. And one of the songs you sent me, which I listened to and enjoyed, was You Should Be With Me. Thank you, number one. One of my favorite things I've ever been a part of. So there's always a story. <laughs> I know your love of stories from what you wrote to me. So I thought, I'm going to pick the ones with stories. So this one, I was living in LA, just banging away. I'd been in this band, Faith Band, that we talked about in the beginning of our conversation. And when the band started not doing as well, I quit. thought either now or never, I'm going to move to LA and just be a songwriter. I'm going to forget bands. I'm just going to be a writer. But boy, I gave up like uh, a pretty good income and everything else to go bang on doors. And it was, it was a tough go in LA at first. Finally got a bit of a break through Virgin Publishing, Virgin Music, Virgin Publishing. And I signed a very small deal, like about a four song deal, I believe. In these discussions, they said, well, we have Roy Orbison getting ready to do the Mystery Girl album, which was turned out to be his last album. And I thought, I love Roy Orbison. I'm ready for this one. You know, So I wrote that song, You Should Be With Me, and completely with a Roy Orbison vibe in my mind. The lyric, the melody, the guitar line, everything about it. Did a pretty rough demo. Eventually, I get a call from Virgin going, Roy loves the song. And said, we've even heard he's carrying it around in his briefcase all the time. Carried a briefcase to and from. Now, here's another one of these. I'm in heaven. I go, well, there's my man. You know, this meant to be. It's a great, I thought it was a great Roy Orbison song. Jeff Lynn's doing the album. I love Jeff Lynn. I was like, this is just perfect. Now, some of this is sketchy to me, but as I remember, I'm waiting to hear whether they do it, you know, where they are. They're doing the Mystery Girl album. Uh, time's moving on a bit. What I remember is waking up one morning and turning on the Today Show in, in my apartment in L.A. and seeing the dates underneath a picture of Roy. Ugh. Traditionally, when somebody passes away. And I went, oh, no. Lost my mind for a minute. Recovered my mind enough to call Virgin and go, did he record the song, guys? Do you know? And they said, we don't know, but we'll check. And they came back later and said, the best of our knowledge is some track done, but no vocal. So no way. Oh, love to get a hands on that. That is my biggest one that ever got away story because I loved him. I know he loved the song. It just never turned up. And uh, I'm going to find out if it exists. If you can find it. Yeah. I think I have a way to do that, Mark. I, let me file back with you on that one. I could be absolutely wrong. I did hear that they cut some version of a track or they're working on it or something, but definitely no, he never sang it. So, so Mark, if Roy Orbison couldn't do this song, even though you wrote it f with him as an inspiration, what voice would you want to record this song? I know there's no voice like Roy Orbison's, but. Well, like my two picks were always Raul Malo of the Mavericks, who really sings in that style and nails it. The other at the time was Dwight Yoakam. Oh, I, I like both those choices. Raul Malo, to this day, I'm going to get him that song somehow. I don't know him, but I have friends that do. I would love to have him do that song. I think it suits the Mavericks as well, but certainly him, his solo stuff. Those would be my picks. I always thought it would get recorded and it has been pitched, but it's just never it's been toyed with, but never used. John Bon Jovi, because he's trying to make a natural turn. Yeah, he's, I know he's done stuff here. But sure. I don't know. Let me think about that. I'm the, I'm the host. I'm not the inspiration. You are. No, you are now the publisher. Go out and get that song cut. 
But I do know who should sing this song, What Would Lennon Do? And that's Ringo Starr. And I actually got it sent to him. And we'll see if he does it. But let's talk about this song, because I love this song. Thank you. I heard you. Thank you for, for your enthusiasm and pushing it as well, man. So tell us about this song. Boy, this is a love story. <laughs> I hope it ends up with a great, happy ending. As writers do, and I'm sure you've heard and know, sometimes you, you have instruments and the old adage is you think there are no more songs in them, you know? So you, you sell a guitar, you trade a guitar or something. And I thought, I've never had an Epiphone, and I'm a huge Beatles fan and, and certainly Lennon fan. You know, I have lots of pictures of their instruments. I thought, I should just get that blonde Epiphone casino that Lennon played in, in the heyday of the Beatles. And, and Harrison had one as well. And they're not expensive or anything. They're Epiphones. Uh, so I got one. And I did not sit down to do anything other than just playing with the guitar. And Beatle chords came out. I mean, this progression that I thought, oh, man, this just sounds like Lennon or something. So, you know, I could get superstitious and think I'm just channeling this from some weird place because, wow. And came up with a chord progression I absolutely loved and was different than anything I had done. I'm a big Beatles fan, but I'd never written a song that evoked them so much like this thing. So, Mark, for our listeners, what Beatles songs have that Epiphone sound that they'll immediately recognize when you name the song? Yeah, I mean, everything through the Revolver album, Rubber Soul album, they used Epiphone so much, especially in the beginning because they, before they could afford more expensive guitars. Epiphones were sort of moderately priced and available in England. So if you look at early Beatle pictures, right up through Revolver in those albums, they were always using those guitars. Others too, but primarily that Epiphone Casino. Is there a particular song that you think of that's like, just defines the Epiphone sound? Oh man, that's a tough question. Because when I heard this, I was like, that's a Beatles guitar you know i know what you're talking about yeah let's I, I don't know if there's a particular song that evokes it but what i did was something i've never done before exactly when i write with kai you know i write lyrics but when i write with kai i just she's the lyricist i'll do the music and the melody this is kai fleming the oh, nashville wow. songwriter hall of fame member yes and blessed because we have a relationship now where she's she's not interested in writing really but she goes if you've got something i'll listen and we'll do it I love it. 
So neither one of us is writing a lot at the moment. We're doing other things, but she has been that way with me, including something brand new we've done. But back to this one. So I write it and I got the melody and I got the chords and I thought this is feels like such a great Beatles song. It just feels like Lennon or something. I don't know what. And I did two things that I'd never quite done. I called Kai and told her it was coming. And I said, the only clue I'm going to give you, I don't know what song this is. I didn't have the title. I didn't say this should be about John Lennon even. I just said, man, it feels uh, a great Beatle melody-ish. And I said, the only thing I can tell you is think of those Lennon lyrics like, you know, the kind of the double talk that I am you and you are me and we are we. And some of the lyrics he wrote that had that sort of feel to them. Nothing you can do that can't be done. Nothing you can win that can't be won. You know, that sort of Lennon vibe. I said, that's all I'm hearing. I don't have anything else. But what I did do is one of my best buddies is Bob Britt, who may come up again today in our talking songs. But Bob is now Bob Dylan's guitar player. He uh, was the Dixie Chicks band leader. He's played with everybody. Delbert McClinton. He just won a Grammy this last year for producing Delbert. He's my favorite guitar player in the world and a great friend. Rather than send Kai my rough, which I still have, I went to Bob and said, could you just do this up a little bit more George Harrison-like? You know, really nail this guitar line I have in that sound. Bob knew it inside out, did another bit of a rough demo, rough drums, and made the guitars more in that vein. And then I sent it to Kai and waited, (laughs) which is what you have to do with Kai. And I thought, I don't know if she loves it. I don't know what we got here. And she started calling me and went, I absolutely love this. I'm on it. I'm working on it. As I remember, pretty soon after, she just sent me the lyric and said, what about this? And I just lost it. I thought, this is just great. It epitomizes the era. You know, what if all we need is love is true is in the lyric. It's just, I thought it was just a brilliant match. You know, so that and Dancing in My Dreams have been my favorite Kai experiences. I've had many with her, but she just blew me away with that lyric. And that's Kai. That's her view of the world. For me, when I heard the song, not only did it sound like a Beatles song or inspired by the Beatles, but the message of the Beatles as a group and John Lennon in particular, and imagine the song that he wrote after they broke up, which is referenced in this and his message of peace and all you need is love. You know, such a simple message has kind of been lost in today's world. And, um, we need to remember it. And so it's really timely for me emotionally, which I like about your songwriting is it touches emotional chords. And you do this in melody a lot. I don't know where you find it, but you find emotional messages in the melodies that you write. Thank you. That that sure is a something to shoot for for me. I'm still of the school, especially being older and having done it a long time. If it doesn't move me, don't have a use for it, really. Same with Kai. And I've actually sent Kai stuff before. She goes, yeah, I'm not quite getting it. So you go, okay. And so that's it. Yeah. I'm always searching for the answer to the question of when a song is done or how do you know that it's it? You know, and I guess you hit it. It's like if it, that feeling of moving you. (laughs) Yeah. If it's not there, then you either keep working or you, you move on. 
to something for me anyway, for sure. And don't get me wrong. I've had a number of cuts too, that weren't songs that, you know, sent chills up my spine, but they got cut by somebody and that's part of your journey, you know, but the ones I love are the ones you, you just you get a chill totally as you're doing it. And you just know it's right. Rest in the shadows The end of your day God command all his angels To guide you along the way Let them watch over When I can be there the best I can give you Is this Father's prayer You'll bring a good man Down to one knee You're gonna save him Like your mother saved me He won't forsake you When life's too hard to bear You love till it hurts Is this Father's Prayer? Let's talk about that Bob Britt enhanced song, This Father's Prayer, that you wrote. Yeah, thank you. That was, it's a pretty simple story. My oldest daughter was getting ready to get married. And this is one I for sure didn't think, what artist is going to do this? It didn't enter into my thinking ever, still really doesn't. I thought, I need to just write how I feel about her and what I wish for her, really. And that's what that song is. And again, I went to my buddy Bob, and I play guitar, but Bob plays guitar. You know, so if, if I'm going to demo something, I'm going to take over what I'm doing and go, can you do what you do to this? And he always just makes it crazy good. So just the two of us, basically, and a friend named John Eden recorded it for us. I sang it, Bob played guitar, and it was meant to be a gift to my daughter. And it was, like I gave it to her on her wedding day. It actually has been used for some other people's weddings, I've heard now, especially in Europe. My German book publisher got a hold of it and started passing it around to someone who does weddings in Germany and Switzerland. So it's been used even in, in the English language. Weird. So this one is perhaps with a double entendre, a little more classically Christian, the Lord's Prayer being our Father. Yeah, yeah. And you reference that in the song. I grew up Catholic and I am a Christian, but I will say I'm not a big fan of current Christian music and I don't write it. I really don't write it because I don't think I know how to write it. I don't think I believe how do I put it? I have a great friend, John Hartley, who's a huge Christian producer and writer. And he's always trying to get me to do these great Christian projects. And he said, because you are a Christian. I said, yeah, but I don't resonate with the music. I resonate with old hymns. 
so yeah, it's in there, certainly in the message and in my thinking for her. And her grandmother was a devout Christian, as is her mom, my wife. So yeah, the message is pretty clear in there. Well, if you were raised Catholic, you probably had to say our fathers <laughs> like a lot. Yeah. This is you being a father talking to your daughter about the Father's Prayer. And the Father, in the lyrics you sent me, is capitalized, meaning it's a reference to God our Father. Yeah, it's, as you said, double entendre, probably. It's, it's me, and it's the Father, Father. Yeah. Oh, you'd like to have your daughter think of you in all caps. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with that, Mark. <laughs> Most dads have given up on that one. <laughs> By the time they're at their daughter's wedding until the till you have to pay for the band and the food. My really quick joke with that story is like over the years, you know, I would go work with somebody while my girls are growing up. The best one was the Spice Girls. They were huge Spice Girl fans when the Spice Girls came out. I took them to see the band. I I didn't know the band at the time. I go back to England, you know, a year or two later, and I work with the Spice Girls for a week. Came back and went, girls, you're not going to believe this. I brought you their autographs. I worked with them for a week, and they were both like, ah, oh, we're so over them. We were over them like, you know, two, three weeks. <laughs> and who were they on to? I don't know at the time. You don't remember. Oh, yeah. Right. John Mayer, probably. John Mayer, big time. Oh, right. Yeah. Spice Girls are yesterday. John Mayer's yeah. today. You shot know. me down like in that fast. You know, what? Oh, no. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so you wrote a song for your daughter about it yes. called This Father's Prayer. So who would you like to record this song, Mark? Wow. <clears throat> it always seemed to me like it would be a good country pitch, and it would have to be obviously for like a Tim McGraw, somebody old enough to have a, a kid, you know. Yeah, I was thinking of Brad Paisley, but Brad Tim Paisley would be good. Blake Shelton even. Somebody that age with kids. Yeah, you have to be a father, right? Can't be. Jason Aldean. That one, you know, I've, I've played before live, especially sitting around with other people. And Kai always goes, that's my favorite song you've ever been a part of. Really? Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. She's she, got a good ear too. Boy. Yeah, she's got a great All ear. All her number ones. Yep. So Mark, thank you so much for being on the show. You've got two books out. You've got Mark Hawley's Song Journey available on Amazon, a hit songwriter's guide through the process. Yeah. That first one, is kind of my story plus the coaching I do. I coach writers all over the world. It's the coaching lessons, but it's my own anecdotal teaching. The new one is a journal, literally with little bits in every day to direct you to something to do, to write, to, to read, to find a YouTube video, something about your songwriting every day, but in journal daily form. And what's that called? That's called the Daily Song Journal. First one is Song Journey. And both are available at a Amazon store near you? Yep. Okay, cool. Thank you. I want our listeners, if you're interested, to go buy that to help our songwriters out. Yes, thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to promote, talk about? I'm applauding you for talking about, I know you're talking about it with other writers as well, of, of songs they love that didn't get cut, which is uh, you know close to songwriters' hearts. It's great. Great to give them life again, talk about them. Well, that's what we're here to do at Backstory Song. I have to thank DJ Wyatt Schmidt. You can listen to his recordings, follow him on Twitch, and you will see him live. And uh, I've listened to some of his recent shows. They're just killer. And our social media director, MC Owen, thank you for all the work and all the followers on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and Pinterest of Backstory Song. And especially, we need you to follow us on Spotify and 
Apple iTunes, please subscribe to our episodes so that they can get played and our songwriters can get heard. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark, for coming on our show. Thank you, Doug. Appreciate it. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.